I would like to welcome you back to Movement Matters, a forced perspective on New Testament restoration. My name is Steve Carr. Thanks for joining me on this journey. I hope that it's been helpful for you. We are on Lesson 6 today, friends. And if you're curious about Lesson 6, maybe you're just listening to this on the podcast. Look, there are resources to help to cement these concepts, to make you think more deeply about this. They are for free. They are available on my website for you, www.houseofcar.com slash movement, www.houseofcar.com slash movement. Lesson six, friends, and like I mentioned in lesson five, these are a couple of the dark times of the restoration movement, but it's through those flaws and those imperfections we get to learn a lot about who we are and what we value. So I'm uh, excited even to bring this very difficult thing. I will tell you to prep you. This might be a two-time listen because I'm going to try to touch on some more complex theological topics in this that impacted our movement. You might need to listen a couple times. You know, hey, I I include the audio notes of what I'm going to – reveal here in this lesson online too. So if you're struggling with this content, um, download those notes, maybe give this a second lesson. I hope it's helpful. So we're going deep here. I imagine if you've made it to lesson six, you're interested in this content. So um, hopefully it works well with you. I'm trying to take something complicated, make it simple. We'll see how we do. So lesson six, the force of fortification. Part one, it doesn't make sense to the dole and the dense. You know, the older I get, the more that free association is taking over. Like if I hear a song or a familiar phrase, my mind is instantly connected to something else. Now that's why whenever I see a woodpecker, I think of the Restoration Movement. Now even though the Restoration Movement is only a couple of centuries old, we have a robust history And our story is filled with minutia. Uh, We've done a great job of archiving our past, but, um, boy, there's a lot of things and collections and writings that we have produced in just 200 years. There, There are libraries full of the books and magazines published by historical restoration movement figures. But when it comes to historic places, there are really only a few of them. You know, in fact, there are only two that are universally recognized as uh, restoration movement meccas, if you will. The first one is Bethany, West Virginia. We discussed this uh, in the lesson on finance, right? It was the hometown of Alexander Campbell. It uh, features a college that he started there, Bethany College. Um, I've been there. It's a quaint town. It's really far off the beaten path, like you feel like you're driving into the middle of nowhere, But there are abundance of historical places that highlight the Restoration Movement right in that little town. Like if if you're near the western Pennsylvania area in Pittsburgh, I I think it's a good drive. I enjoy it. If you're interested in this stuff, you can actually tour Campbell's house and uh, see uh, where he's buried. I have pictures of this uh, from my trip there in the free resources online. Now – Although that's a historical site, I would offer that the best-known place, location in the Restoration Movement is Cane Ridge, Kentucky. Uh, that, that site there 
home of the August 1801 Cane Ridge Revival, feels even more hollowed than Bethany. You can see the sprawling fields where the thousands of people gathered for the revival. There's there's ample space for you to imagine how the events occurred. But maybe more impressively, there's this log cabin on the site. And it's known as the Cane Ridge Meeting House. It was a church building. It was constructed soon after the completion of the Revolutionary War. Uh, there were you know, events during the revival that took place there at the Meeting House. And the Frontier Era building is still used for worship services today. And it's, I'll, I'll say, in my opinion, Cane Ridge is the epicenter of the Restoration Movement. Maybe you could argue that it's you know Jerusalem, where you know the Book of Acts took place. I just feel like Cane Ridge is our spiritual center. Okay, I've I live close enough, so it's it's about an hour and a half away from my house. I've I've been there on numerous occasions, and I, I just even though it's a geeky thing, I just grin whenever I pull into the driveway. Um, now, let me pause. I, I mentioned previously there's three different streams of the Restoration Movement, right? There's my tribe, the independent, independent Christian churches, where the moderates in the middle. There are the Churches of Christ. We talk about them extensively in the Fracture. In last lesson, they are the, uh, the non-instrumental variety. In this lesson, we're going to really focus in on that third stream of the Restoration Movement, the Disciples of Christ. Uh, they're the ones who eventually form their very own denomination. Even though they're known for downplaying the authority of the scriptures, they're, they're also the stream that's most fervently uh, devoted to our movement's history. Like uh, of Bethany and Cane Ridge, it's the disciples of Christ that curate and preserve these historic sites. They oversee both Campbell's house in Bethany and Cane Ridge. Uh, and in the mid-20th century at Cane Ridge, there was an issue with the old meeting house there. It was under attack. Not metaphorically, mind you, but literally under attack from woodpeckers. Woodpeckers were attacking the log cabin. Now, through my research, I am not a woodpecker expert, so I think I have this research proper from what I have read. There are generally four different varieties of woodpeckers that are native to the state of Kentucky. One of them is the yellow-bellied sapsucker, which is an insult you should note to use later. I think if I called somebody a yellow-bellied sapsucker, we would throw down, right? Well, the yellow-bellied sapsucker was a woodpecker that took a lighting, uh, liking to the Cane Ridge Meeting House. Um, and, and if you know anything about woodpeckers, they generally drill you know, with their beaks a cavity in the wood. They do this for nesting, for roosting, or even when they're just looking for food. Uh, at Cane Ridge, it was these woodpeckers attacking the meeting house. They were innocently just trying to survive, but they were actually endangering the durability of the log cabin structure. And there was no way that they could prevent these birds from living in the area. The area. So they had to come up with a solution, and that solution to protect the meeting house was to actually build a building around it. They built an entire structure around it. The plan called for this limestone superstructure to surround the log cabin, to put it under roof. And that way, the building would be saved from a woodpecker infestation. Uh, it would protect it also from inclement weather. And then if visitors came by, you can, you can tour it. If it's raining at Cane Ridge, you can go and just spend time uh, in the log cabin 
meeting house. So construction on the superstructure started in the late 1950s. It was finally completed in June of 1959. Uh, and because of that, because of that, for me, uh, with that building, that's the only way that I've ever known Cane Ridge. And I will tell you, I, I believe the superstructure provides a terrific aesthetic. Like the light brown limestone bricks flow perfectly into its pitched roof. And, um, and then you get inside, and it's just fun to see. So I think of woodpeckers, and I think of this meeting house, and I think of fortification. Now, as we're looking at this, I'm going to tell you that fortification – is a mo- more recent, perhaps the most recent force of the Restoration Movement. Fortification was a layer of protection constructed to preserve our identity. Even though we're a unity movement, we protect ourselves against hazards. We're especially fearful of objects that could derail our cause. In, in restoring the New Testament, there are threats more dangerous than woodpeckers. I was taught that I was simply Christian, nothing more, nothing less. And it wasn't until seminary that I learned that there was another name to describe my tribe, disciples. Disciples was a biblical term for followers of Jesus. But by the time of my youth, in the late 1970s and early 1980s, that term was anathema for the moderates, the independent Christian church. Uh, Disciples as a name for followers of Jesus, was now universally avoided because the scriptural meaning had been co-opted. As I mentioned, the disciples of Christ love our movement history. They've invested in the sites. They've maintained our historical archives. But some turned their back on the restoration plea, which made the story significant in the first place. They built superstructures to preserve ancient sites, but the Bible was left exposed. They allowed the authority of the scripture to wither away, to be attacked by the beaks of pesky birds. It's because of the disciples of Christ that the independent churches fortified. Now, what was interesting is growing up in a restoration movement church, I was unaware that this was even fortification. I just thought it was who we were. But practically everything I was taught about the Bible as a young person was influenced by our position of entrenchment. We were Christians only, but we were extremely selective about our partnerships. I just assumed that building walls was an essential part of our identity. But I'll tell you, and this is the point of this lesson, is that fortification was merely a reaction at a time when everything was at stake. But it reveals a troubling truth, is that our movement is often better at erecting walls than it is at building bridges. So in order to understand our addiction to fortification, we need to see what brought us here. And that's going to require us a deep dive into theology and history. Part two, a dim enlightenment. So the conflict with the disciples of Christ spans nearly a century. Most of the events are subtle and anticlimactic. There were continual tremors, but never a defining earthquake that tore it all apart. The key issue behind the splint, uh, behind the split, derives from some complex theological concepts. And you know, really, that's why many lose interest in a study and they never really grasp the nature of the argument. So as I mentioned in the introduction, my goal 
here has been to simplify these complicated aspects of our story. I'm going to try to give you just a streamlined version of events. So, you know, when I teach this in a class, we would do it over the course of hours and maybe different, you know, class sessions. But here what we have to do is familiarize ourselves with the term theological liberalism. Theological liberalism. In our politically charged society, the word liberal, for some of us, bears baggage. And as a result, we could erroneously label uh, theological liberalism as something it isn't. Right? That's why we are coming back to the original context. So let's, let's look at it even etymologically. Right? In its simplest form, the word liberal is a comparative term. It's a position established from a median. Maybe easily for most of us. It's the opposite of conservatism. Generally, conservatism is associated with tradition, and liberalism is associated with freedom. You see, as as we discussed in Lesson 3, freedom is a force that can be used for harm or good. Now, similarly, and I think this is important for us to grasp, tradition is its own force that can be wielded both positively or negatively. Some of us, and I would say it's more influenced by politics than anything else, attach a negative connotation to the term liberal. But it can be positive. It can be used to describe something as a benevolent or hospitable. Even in the Bible, taking a liberal position isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like the easiest example here is the Pharisees. Remember that their view of the scripture was uber conservative. By their standards, Jesus' interpretation of the law was incredibly liberal. So while liberalism isn't necessarily bad, within this term, theological liberalism would be considered to be counter-orthodox, right? When we talk about orthodoxy and the right thinking, theological liberalism stands opposed to that. In this position, running against a tradition of right thinking. That's a troubling thing. What theological liberalism does is it turns it back on it turns its back on thousands of years of biblical interpretation. It considers the Bible to be more human and less divine. And this skeptical approach to scriptures didn't originate in the restoration movement. That's that's important to understand. Really, it didn't even originate in America. Like the Enlightenment, theological liberalism develops in Europe and eventually made its way to the United States. So while its origins aren't directly connected to the Restoration Movement, we, we need to try to understand it. Okay, So for us to understand this fight over theological liberalism, we need to understand what influenced. Okay, we're going to the deep end of the pool, so come with me, and uh, if you get caught someplace in the undertow, just hit pause, rewind it, and listen again. The first influencer of theological liberal, uh, liberalism. See, it? it's so deep in this part of the pool. It's so cold. I can't even talk. Can I try that again? The first thing to understand in theological liberalism is historical criticism. The higher criticism of the Bible, it started to emerge in the late 1700s. There's German theologian Friedrich Schleiermacher, who was very influential in historical criticism. He's viewed as the father of theological liberalism. Okay, His name is Schleiermacher. It's a good German name. Historical criticism saw the, the Bible as a purely human invention. It was a denial of, deni- of divine inspiration, that the Bible is the word of God. It rejected the existence of biblical miracles. It doubted the historical accuracy of biblical events. So in this view, 
underneath historical criticism, the Bible was no more profound than any other piece of ancient literature. And under historical criticism, the Bible then has limited usefulness. It merely it reveals life lessons that the original authors were apparently trying to teach us. Okay, so that view of the Bible, what it did was it attacked that position of biblical authority, which was central to the restoration plea. And historical criticism continues to increase in popularity throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries. Okay, historical criticism. The second thing we need to understand is the social gospel. Now, this is where German theologian Albrecht Ritzel, oh, I knew I was going to struggle here. Ritzel is highly influential. I didn't take my German. But the American champion for it, I like his name too. All these guys have tremendous names. It was a minister named Walter Rauschenbusch. Uh, Rauschenbusch, I read him in my studies just because he was quite the urbanist too. So understand the social gospel. And again, this is a little more gray than the black and white that is historical criticism because there is something good at work here. The focus was trying to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Okay, So Ritual argued that the church's first and greatest calling was to address the ills of society. Now, I, I want to pause there, especially as I record these podcasts. We're in a time of protest in the United States, and I know some Christians are struggling with that. But we need to admit that the gospel is more robust than we usually believe that it is. Okay, So there is an aspect of the good news of Jesus that addresses today. The, the gospel is definitely good news for today, and it should speak to the ills of society. However, the challenge of the social gospel was it tended to overemphasize the church's call to make the world a better place. And too often, it underemphasized or even eliminated the gospel's eternal power, right? The, the, the power of the gospel to deliver us from our sin was marginalized under the social gospel. So in this paradigm, God's wrath and judgment could become repulsive concepts, and there are some who believe that it were those concepts that actually prevented us from being able to minister to society because we saw people as sinners, right, as in need of help. And we'll pause right here. Just you know, what is the true gospel? The true gospel is everybody acknowledging their own sin, not just us viewing others as sinners. But uh, there, there wasn't that space for duality within the social gospel. Uh, and as a result, it just didn't accept the paradoxical nature of God. So it subverted the Bible's eternal authority in favor of its moral responsibility. So again, to be clear on the social gospel, because you know we see social and social justice, and these are things that some people believe are just anti-scriptural because of some of the influence of these liberal concepts. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. There's a place and space for this, even the Restoration Movement today. What we don't want to do is eliminate the power of the gospel to impact eternity. And that is the turn. Now, uh, historical criticism, the social gospel. Finally, we have to acknowledge Darwinism, right? And this is one perhaps with most of us, uh, with which most of us are familiar. Uh, Charles Darwin was not a theologian, but he did advance theological causes in his career. Uh, Darwin, he's a fascinating figure. He struggled with Christianity throughout most of his life. Uh, you read on him. 
the death of his young daughter exacerbated his crisis of faith. Like after his passing, his views on creationism reflect an inner turmoil that he had. And it was at the age of 50 that he published a book advocating his theory of evolution. Um, and I, I will say this about it too because evolution is probably one of the most uh, influential scientific concepts uh, maybe in modern history. But Darwin, you know, as he proposed this, as, as some of his observations were right, there was this idea that his original form of uh, evolution was tied into a, a white supremacy view of existence. So it's interesting that um, we're able to overlook some of his social ills within the process because he brilliantly observed it, I guess, is how people view it. I don't know. But what's interesting is that Darwinism, as much as it impacted the scientific world, it was also freely applied to social, political, and religious fields. And what the science of evolution itself does is virtually eliminates, you know, uh, Darwin ended up, he was a deist, but he probably was a functional atheist, right? But what what evolution did was it virtually eliminated the, the, the need for a creator, and that was almost, uh, you know, always just then seen to marginalize the role of a creator. Uh, the net effect is, theologically, is it lowered biblical authority and empowered higher criticism and the social gospel right so again I, I when you teach about these these are really robust concepts and i know some people that you know when you read some of the people involved in this it's it's not that all of their thinking was misguided it's just these are the you know the influencers of this but at a base level, we have to understand how these come together to create theological liberalism. This idea that the Bible is not what you would say it is. It's not divine. It's not inspired. <sighs> Under these three movements, uh, biblical scholars start to become more creative. They start to imagine new ways to view the Bible and, in essence, limit its authority. So these scholars who were faculty, right, theological faculty at seminaries, began to teach theologically liberal concepts to students. Now, who were their students, right? Predominantly, they were ministry students. And where did those ministry students go? They went from seminary into the pulpits across the United States. Now, within a generation, theological liberalism started to infiltrate the local church. And this included not just, you know, mainline denominations, but also restoration movement Christian churches. Theological liberalism undermines the authority of the Bible. And for a movement like ours that was dedicated to the restoration of New Testament, that it was a predator. <sighs> Here, however, our non-denominational structure proved to be somewhat beneficial. Because uh, battles over theological liberalism took place in the mainline denominations, and there were biblically faithful Christians in those denominations, but they were handcuffed by politics and polity. So let me, let me, let's look and imagine how it would take place in a Presbyterian congregation. Let's say they had a minister come in who taught theological liberalism, and the people in the pews recognized it and were against it, right? If they wanted to out, oust their minister who was theologically liberal, they could not do it by themselves because removing clergy was the exclusive right of the local presbytery. If the decision makers at the local presbytery level 
were theologically liberal themselves, then the local church would be powerless to do anything but to leave the denomination altogether. And this movement plays itself out because usually the ownership of the houses of worship are listed underneath the presbytery or the denomination, the diocese, whatever itself. So they had little course for resource. The only thing they could do is get up and leave and abandon all of they built within the local church. Now, think about this in the restoration movement. What's one of our values? There's biblical authority, there's Christian unity, but there's also church autonomy. The restoration movement congregations were independent. As a result, church elders could easily remove a theologically liberal minister from the pulpit. But even though there was this level of governance, it didn't eliminate then the threat of theological liberalism from the restoration movement. It seeped into our fellowships, churches, ministries, and institutions. And as a result, there was an entire generation raised up who were prepared to fight for their faith. Part three, black and white and red all over. So let's make a call back to the story from the beginning of the lesson. How did the people preserving the Cane Ridge Meeting House approach their woodpecker situation? Let's, let's, let's just imagine the caretakers of the Meeting House didn't view woodpeckers as a threat. What if instead of building a superstructure, they decided to create a bird sanctuary? What if they shipped in woodpeckers from across the country to resettle there at Cane Ridge? <laughs> Sounds ridiculous, but this illustrates how some in the movement dealt with theological liberalism. They decided not to fortify it at all. They didn't view it as a threat, and they welcomed it with open arms. So to see how this happened, I've, I've got to go again into the history. Let's look at ministerial training on seminaries, right? Much of the Restoration Movement adopted a primitive, anti-intellectual approach to education. Uh, this was despite the fact that uh, Alexander Campbell was such an influential intellectual man. But <clears throat> in early America, developing clergy was always done through academic institutions. In, in the Restoration Movement, there's always been a tension about these seminaries, right? So <clears throat> there were Restoration Movement seminaries at the turn of the 20th century, but very few had stellar academic reputations. So some who were seeking a higher caliber educational experience would look elsewhere. A lot of them in the Midwest enrolled at the University of Chicago. Now, it, it had a divinity school, and it benefited much from the investment of John D. Rockefeller. It was a it was a Baptist seminary, right? It was one of the Midwest's most respected seminaries. But because it was Baptist, when Restoration Movement students went there to learn, they 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 needed a way to learn their own culture. That's why a bunch of donors came together and created the funds for the Disciple Divinity House at the University of Chicago. And it was instilled to help Restoration Movement ministry students to learn tradition. But the University of, the, of Chicago in the early 20th century had become a hotbed for theological liberalism. The faculty undermined the authority of scriptures. Students were encouraged to adopt a liberal, theologically liberal view of the Bible. And Restoration Movement students uh, took this into the pulpits with them. 
So I want to go from Chicago down toward Cane Ridge to Lexington, Kentucky, because there was a restoration movement school there called the College of the Bible. It was fairly well-respected, and it was theologically conservative. The president was a man named J.W. McGarvey, and he made sure that its faculty used the Bible as primary textbook and believed that it was true. And almost all the faculty there were educated either up at Bethany, where Alexander Campbell had started the school, or at the College of Bible itself. McGarvey stayed as president until he died in 1911. But within a few years of his death, the entire faculty at the College of the Bible in Lexington, Kentucky had turned over. They were replaced by theologically liberal professors who had been educated at the University of Chicago. And when word got out about how the college was teaching liberalism, the conservatives in the restoration movement objected. They went to the school's trustees and demanded a thorough investigation. The trustees said, we'll do that. But at the result of the investigation, they said, nope, everybody's good. The investigation was a farce because the trustees affirmed a theologically liberal position. This actually set into motion a series of events that started with an emergence of new schools all across the Restoration Movement. A lot of the Bible colleges of the 20th and 21st centuries were started because of the events at the College of the Bible in Lexington, Kentucky. Okay, that's a thread. Can I go back to the woodpecker again? Can I go back to this conundrum? Let's imagine that, okay, maybe they don't create a bird sanctuary for the woodpeckers. Let's say they built a different superstructure. They're like, we are going to protect the Cane Ridge Log Cabin Meeting House at all costs. So we will build a superstructure around it. But imagine it was more than the building that currently exists. What if they built this vaulted structure reminiscent of something like Fort Knox, okay? But what if they built a structure with no windows or no doorways, right? So they build this structure about the log cabin. It is completely safe from woodpeckers, but there are no doors, and nobody can ever access it ever again, right? That's another ridiculous approach, but I would say just in in an illustration, that's how some responded in the restoration movement, and that's how some fortified. They embraced this fight against theological liberalism, but in doing so, they quarantined themselves. See, we have to consider what else was happening in the broader evangelical world at this time. Other Christian denominations and networks were engaged in similar fights with theological liberalism, and this led to the emergence of a belief system known as fundamentalism. Now, perhaps you've heard of fundamentalist, fundamentalism, you didn't know what it was. It emerged in this time. It elevated certain facts of faith that biblically faithful Christians must hold to to be considered a good Bible-believing Christian. I mean, you know, in this list, there were things like the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth of Jesus, substitutionary atonement that Jesus uh, literally died on the cross to save us from our sins. It holds to the belief in biblical miracles. That's fundamentalism, and in some ways, it establishes a foundation for Christian unity, right? If you're saying this is what it takes to be a Christian, and if you just sign up for this, you know, like you would think that would expand Christian unity. But the irony is that even though fundamentalism was widely adopted in the independent Christian church, it, 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 it succeeded in fortifying against liberalism, but you would think that it would have expanded it, and what it did was it just created a basis from which battles could be waged. 
So what happened with theological liberalism is it infiltrated the restoration movement and infiltrated our historic institutions. New conservative organizations were created to replace these liberal ones. Um, and it changed everything. But what it did was it forced people to pick a side. What people wanted to make sure is that there were no liberals masquerading as conservatives, no wolves in sheep's clothing. So essentially every restoration movement minister and leader were forced to declare what side they were on. Were you with the biblically faithful or were you with the liberal disciples? There was lists of these declarations that were published after World War II. The Christian Standard magazine kept a running list of ministers. I mean, and it became so long that eventually Standard Publishing said, we're not going to print this list anymore. It was just, it was a matter of pragmatism. But in 1955, there was a missionary named Vernon Newland. I found out a lot of uh, Vernon uh, through his ministry in the South, in the Dallas area. Uh, interesting fella, <laughs> so from what I've heard. But he began publishing a book called The Directory of the Ministry. The Directory of the Ministry, if you're in the Restoration Movement, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're new to this, it's a book that you can find a copy. It is a complete listing of the Bible-believing institutions and people of the Restoration Movement. And a new one is issued every year. Um, We'll get back to that book, actually. I'll, I'll talk about that in the next lesson. But let me, after World War II, this fight escalates to lawsuits where theologically liberal people actually uh, sue churches for their buildings or to sue them over issues of libel. And there was a commission in 1960 started to explore a restructuring of the Christian churches. By the end of that decade, the Disciples of Christ become their own full-fledged denomination. So the conflict ends, but it leaves indelible scars. Theological liberalism leaves conservatives suspicious of other people. In essence, I would say that the value of Christian unity in our plea was essentially put on pause to protect the value of biblical authority. See, fortification was a strategy employed to rebuff a formidable enemy. But problems arise when we attempt to normalize fortifications. Like the construction of barricades of defenses is critical in a time of war. But in peacetime, those barriers are less necessary, right? In the independent Christian churches, this uh, combative, fortified attitude lasted long beyond the conflict with the disciples of Christ. We not only kept our fortifications, but we built even more robust ones And to justify our fortifications, we continually redefined what theological liberalism was. Um, Today, I hear people declare things as being theological liberal that are are just a whole just litany of non-essential issues. And we add to our list of things that are orthodox because really we believe some of these issues are more important than the essential aspects of our Christian faith. I mean, there are some people who view the directory of ministry uh, as equal with the word of God itself, as if it is the be-all, end-all of what it means to be part of this unity movement. I, I would say there's a popular term, uh, term that is used to describe what this is. This is essentially gatekeeping, right? It's this idea that there are, are certain people that are free to define who is in or out of our tribe. 
And I've witnessed countless accusations of theological liberalism in the Restoration Movement, whether it's arguments over biblical translations or technology in worship or, um, or, or even women serving in ministry. I'll tell you, quite honestly, I have been called on multiple occasions by those in the Restoration Movement as being theologically liberal. And I'm quite certain that somehow the content of this lesson series will increase that tally. So of all the forces we've discussed in Movement Matters, this is the one that really burdens me. It brings me distress because isolationism may appear to be a biblical posture, but in reality, it's an extremist position. Overt fortification is practiced to secure a certainty that no one is truly guaranteed. As, as much as many prefer a faith that's black and white, we must admit that there is a lot of gray permitted in God's word. And that's why the cause of unity is so elusive. I'd say now more than ever, friends, there are fellow Christians who want to partner with the restoration movement. They share our plea our values of biblical authority, of church autonomy, of Christian unity, and they are not theologically liberal. They're just seeking a tribe. And, you know, in my work, I've had a chance to engage in the broader evangelical world. I've met these people, and I'm telling you, we need to be friends with them. But for this to happen... We're going to have to look beyond our past. We're going to have to escape the trauma of our fight with the disciples of Christ. And we're going to need to extend trust. We needn't be afraid, but we are going to have to tear down walls. Fortification had its time. Now, for the betterment of the kingdom of God, it's time to tear down some walls and build some bridges. Hey, Thanks for sticking with me on this one. Uh, again, a lot of stuff we went through. I hope this was helpful. That's what the point of Movement Matters is, is to introduce you to these essential issues for us in the restoration movement. Hey, more resources, as I said, are available for you on my personal website, www.houseofcar.com movement. Let's continue on this journey of learning who we are and who we need to be for the betterment of the kingdom. Take care.